And take your Bible, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look at five verses today, verses 7 through 11. But as we begin today, I just want to, the introduction to a sermon is more about framing the picture that we're going to talk about today. And I just want to talk and kind of put in perspective where the church in America, the evangelical church in America is. And uh, what is an evangelical? I thought it'd be good to define that since that term gets put out there and passed around. And I went to the National Association of Evangelicals. And here's four descriptors for you. Conversionism. They believe that an evangelical believes that lives need to be transformed through a born-again experience and a lifelong process of following Jesus. Biblicism, a high regard for an obedience to the Bible is the ultimate authority. Activism, the expression and demonstration of the gospel and missionary and social reform efforts. And crucicentrism, a stress on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is making possible the redemption of humanity. Those are probably the four, and there could be others that you could put in there, but probably distinguish what an evangelical is in our world and our culture. And this had a rise. It began to rise and become stronger and stronger at the end of the 20th century into the 21st century. It started with the Jesus Movement out in California, Pastor Chuck Smith in Calvary Chapel, as he reached out to the unchurched young people of the day. There's a new movie coming out soon about the Jesus Movement. It's in production. It's called The Jesus Revolution. It's based on a book by Pastor Greg Lowry on the Jesus Movement that took place during the 1970s. So the Jesus Movement spurred a movement that spread across America and then to other parts of the world, and it led to the growth of megachurches that we see today. Now, God has given all different sizes of churches for different purposes and different needs in communities. Megachurches in and of themselves are not a bad thing. They offer many different ministries that can aid and influence strongly a community for Christ. My wife and I, we went to a megachurch for 12 years, 12,000 people every Sunday morning. And so at some point, some of these churches, large, big, and small, began to cross a line where they wanted to be seeker aware or seeker sensitive. They began to do a number of things. Some would stay away from preaching on controversial areas of scripture. They would stick to things that would uh, not offend people, that would bring them in. They simply didn't preach the whole counsel of God. Some of these churches became more focused on being attractional than sharing about the cost of coming to Christ and being his disciple. Some of these churches focused more on the marketing techniques and pop psychology with scripture thrown in, rather than at times looking at the hard teachings of the Bible and the Old Testament and church discipline and what it means to be a committed disciple of Christ. Some of these churches went for the show instead of the depth of the word of God by pursuing social and cultural acceptance over the hard sayings found in the word of God. This proves today to be a more subtle moving away from the whole counsel of God than out-and-out theological liberalism where they clearly state they don't believe in the inspired word of God anymore and they moved more to a social gospel where they care more about the humanity at large with less and less about the power of the transforming word of God. It's easier to deal with theological liberalism than the subtle seeking of the approval of the culture and tailoring a message to make people feel comfortable that undermines the truth. The other extreme is the ultra-fundamentalist church. 
And these churches want to isolate themselves from the world or even become militant. We've heard of the Westboro Baptist Church, for example. And they, have, they don't have any influence, but they focus on just their church family and judging the things of the world and just holding out until Jesus returns. The church in America as a whole needs to be seeking revival. And next week we'll talk more in depth about revival. But what does revival look like? Revival in a person in a church is a humble, broken, and contrite heart before the Lord over our individual sins and the national sins of our country. It's a seeking after God for an ongoing sensitivity to sin and utter dependence upon God in our lives. A revival that occurs in a person or a church is a holy separation from worldly philosophies and a commitment solely to God's word. It means to stand on the convictions and promises of God's word no matter what, pleasing God only even if men do not agree or applaud our stand. It's, the revived church needs to be an alternative to the world's philosophies through grace and truth, being the salt and light in a loving way, pointing people to the cross of Christ, even if they reject it. Crowds in a church are not bad. In fact, they're great. But a revived church will once again impact and influence the community the way God intended it to. John MacArthur, speaking about a church that's revived, said this, when they do, when a church is revived, the church will be more than a crowd. It will become spiritually powerful before a hostile world. As we look at this passage of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, we see a similar situation Peter is writing about. Just like today, he believed Jesus was coming back. And he believed that shortly after he watched Jesus go up into heaven in the book of Acts. Now he's older, he's writing this letter, this epistle, and he's now again saying he believed that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. In this passage we'll read and study today, we will see is reminding us of our spiritual commitment in these last days. <clears throat> so let's turn our attention to God's word in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God... Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. So on your outline, let's look at five descriptions, five descriptions of love as a result of a revived church looking soon to the return of Jesus Christ. First of all, love stays focused, stays focused on God's kingdom. Look at verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things here is not a chronological term. This means that a process is about to be completed. A goal will be achieved. A destination will occur. And finally, you will get to the end of your journey. Jesus' return is at hand, and myself being a premillennial, pre-tribulational believer, I fully believe that we're nearing the end of 
the church age, and I believe the next thing on God's timetable of history is the rapture of the church. And that word rapture is not found in the Bible. In the Greek, it means a snatching away. And you can read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, about this process where I believe Christ is going to come in the clouds. He's going to bring those who are dead in Christ out of the grave. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the clouds and be with him forever. And Peter is saying that we need to be prepared because Jesus could come at any moment. I believe he could come today. He might wait for 100 years. We don't know. But Peter is saying, first of all, we need to be self-controlled as we wait for the return of Christ. Be self-controlled. We're not to be swept away by the things of this world that are contrary to God and his word. We're not to give in to the temptations, to the passions and emotions of our flesh and the world. We don't have time for that, Peter is saying. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In our case, we're part of the Lord's army, and we've been enlisted by God if we've accepted Christ as Savior if we're born again. And we've got to be careful we don't entangle ourselves with the civilian pursuits of this world. Be self-controlled. Second of all, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. We're to be clear-minded. Disciplined in our thoughts. That's what it means. We're to maintain an eternal perspective as we pursue holiness in our lives. Staying true to the word of God, to obey it, to love it, to meditate on it, and to claim the promises that are in his word. To keep our eyes fixed on the cross of Christ and count the cost to be his disciple. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus was describing what it would be like to be his disciple. And part of that um, section of scripture, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a daily choice when we wake up. Are we going to set aside our selfish pursuits to deny ourselves and to follow Christ? In Luke 9, 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In the Christian life, you're either going forwards or you're going backwards. There's no neutrality. And God says, Jesus says, we need to be moving forward in our growth to become more like him. The end of 1 Peter 4, 7 says, for the sake of your prayers. So notice what Peter is saying as he links these three thoughts together. If we're distracted by worldly pursuits, lusts and goals and idolatry, we cannot fully pursue a growing intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. Prayer is developing that intimate relationship with God. Yes, it's adoration, it's confessing our sin, it's you know, prayers of thanksgiving and also supplications, the things that we, we need to ask God for, for ourselves on behalf of others. But ultimately, prayer is building that intimate relationship with him and spending time alone with him. Jesus challenged his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to watch and pray. Watch meant to be eagerly focused on the eternal, knowing that we're going to face a day of accountability at the end of life. And praying is to maintain that dependence and connection to the Heavenly Father for wisdom in this life to do his will. In another passage, Jesus said, occupy or stay working until I come. You remember a couple parables. One, the parable of the 
the man who set up a farm and he left some hirelings underneath to stay there and he took off to a far country and his purpose was to come back and they were to manage his resources and his assets and to grow his farm and to increase his wealth. You think of the parable of the talents, same picture, where he gave them different amounts of coins and he came back for accountability. We're to stay busy using our spiritual gifts in anticipation of Jesus' return. We're to be eagerly living in the hope of our future salvation. And we're to pray as we pursue God's will, attempting to bring as much heaven down to earth as we can while expanding his kingdom and bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. Prayers here means the careful maintaining of our relationship with God. A summary of verse 7 is found in this quote by Ken Weiss, the commentator. He said, be calm and collected in spirit with a view to giving yourself to prayer. Be calm and collected in spirit with a view to giving yourself to prayer. So the first application we have here, are we eagerly praying and serving in anticipation of Christ's soon return? Are we eagerly praying? Are we serving? Are we sober-minded? Are we self-controlled? Are we focused on our relationship with God? A second aspect of love seen in a revived church anticipating the return of Christ Love is an action displayed toward others. Love is an action. Love is a verb, as DC Talk sang about in their song. Something we do. It's not just emotion. It's not being sentimental. That's all could be part of it. But it's a, something that we demonstrate or show. Look at verse 8. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, he says here, he says the supreme virtue of the Christian life is to love God and love one another. That's called the great commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus said, or, or the writer said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the teaching that's been given, all from scripture, hinge on those two things. So the first thing we see in verse eight here is love is continuous. It says, keep on having an earnest love. Keep on, that's continual, it's a process. It's not something you do once and stop. Continue to love one another in the family of God earnestly. Now, earnestly is a word picture in the Greek, and it means that of a runner running in a race, in a competition, straining all their muscles, striding as wide as they can to win the race. Another commentator said in the common Greek of the day, it was a picture of a horse galloping at full stride straining all the muscles of their body. We're to love each other with that kind of approach. Sacrificially, we're to put another Christian spiritual good ahead of our own desires, even if we're treated unkindly and in a great, an ungracious manner, or even treated with hostility. Paul said in Philippians chapter two, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And that's powerful. We take care of ourselves. We make sure we're whole spiritually and physically and emotionally and mentally. But then also we're to expand that care to other people around us, those who are in the body of Christ. We're to love others earnestly and to keep that intensity of love as part of being self-controlled, sober-minded, and praying for all the saints. But not only that, we're to show love that forgives. Love forgives. Love forgives. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. James 5.20, James said this, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The kind of love we're talking about here is agape love. Love that comes only from God. Love that's poured out into our hearts when we receive Christ as Savior and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. There are many, many times that people say or do things to us that hurt us. And it's up to you and I, as we think about this verse and some of the other verses, it's up to us to determine in our hearts when the issue is so hurtful or big enough to go and confront and seek forgiveness and reconciliation or just to let it pass. Some questions to think about when you are in that situation. Is the person young in his or her faith? Can you just let it go what was said or what was done? Is it their personality or their way of looking at things or how they say things? Is it something that's a repeated habit and needs to be pointed out to the person to help them overcome this blind spot and to grow in their faith and to be more like Christ? How big a deal is it, what they said or did? These answers and what to do are all relative to each of our individual situations and the convictions of our heart and our emotional makeup. These and other things need to be considered when deciding what to do when we've been sinned against or someone has offended us. And here's a good marker, if the hurt continues, If it sticks in your mind and your heart for several days, maybe that's the spirit prompting you to go and talk to that person and to talk out the issue and to seek reconciliation. That process must be done in the spirit of humility and love with the goal of bringing reconciliation and forgiveness. Matthew 18 and Galatians 6 talk about this. In Galatians 6, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual shall restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. We need to take care of ourselves, but we also need to bear the burdens of others. We need to go in a humble, loving way to seek forgiveness. Jesus said, forgive 70 times 7. But Jesus also said, don't cast your pearls before swine. In other words, there's a time and place for tough love. We love somebody, but we may need to separate from them for a period of time so that we can protect our own emotions, 
or maybe it's an abusive situation physically to protect ourselves physically and to protect our spiritual walk with Christ. We're not called to enable people even as we forgive them. That is something each person has to determine for themselves as to what point they will show that kind of tough love to someone. So here's our application. Are we able to love others continuously and unconditionally even when we are treated unjustly? Continuously and unconditionally, are we able to love others even if we're not treated in the right way? Our third description of a revived church showing love as it eagerly awaits the return of Christ is this, love shows hospitality to Christ followers and those in need in the community. Hospitality. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He's talking here, first of all, to those in the church family. Hospitality literally means a love for strangers, foreigners, those you're not acquainted with in a practical way. It means here opening, it literally means opening up your home to somebody. There was a couple in our church. We had a man passing through and he was working at a local factory for a period of time and identified himself as being a born again believer and attended our church here for a short period of time. And there was a couple in our church that took them, opened their home up and took him in while he was here working in one of our local factories. That's a picture of showing hospitality to the needs of others in the church family and not grumbling while you do it. This is done again out of sacrificial love, wanting the best for others. Philemon, little book in the New Testament we don't talk much about, but Philemon was the slave owner of Onesimus. And Paul wrote a little letter to him. But notice in the greeting, he talks about the hospitality. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and here's the key, and the church in your house. Philemon opened his house for the local church to come to show hospitality, to gather for worship on Sundays. And then to those who are in need outside of the church family. Our love must go beyond the church family and other believers in our community, but also to those who do not yet know Christ. Even, Jesus said, our enemies as well. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Verse 10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're to do good to everyone, but especially those that are believers in the local church. Jesus said in Matthew 25, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done it as unto me. We serve others as if they were Christ himself. And it's interesting in Hebrews 13, as we serve others, we never know, but we might have served angels unawares. It says in Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue, the same thought. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Those who are in prison, those who are in the need, we may be angels that we'll find out when we get to heaven. 
It was a test to see our compassion, our love, our earnest love for other people. We serve those who are foreigners in need. President Biden is committed to bringing in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees into our country. Do you know there are 95 verses in the Bible sharing how we are to treat the impoverished and the downtrodden that we would consider foreigners? Exodus 22:21, the writer admonishes the Israelites to remember this, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He said, guess what? You were a foreigner at one time. Now you're in your land. You need to treat others who come into your land who are foreigners with respect. The world is coming more and more to us in America. And these are golden opportunities to share Christ's love and bring these people to a saving knowledge of Christ. We're also called to take care of the widows and the orphans. That's a picture of what pure religion is, as James says. In James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So our application is this. Are we looking out for the opportunities to bless others in meeting a need? Are we looking for those opportunities? Do you wake up and pray, God, bring somebody across my path today? that I can share and whatever their need is. Maybe it's just a smile. Maybe it's just opening the door to a place of business that you're going into. Maybe it's somebody who will share about their financial need, whatever big and small it is. May we have that attitude to look for those opportunities to bless people in need around us. Fourthly, love serves others by using their spiritual gifts. He gets into a discussion in verses 10 and 11 about spiritual gifts. Verse 10 in 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Free spiritual gifts are given to build others up in the faith. They're given for one purpose, to build others up in the faith. Notice that word gift. And if we were able to transliterate it from the Greek, it would be charisma in English. And it's implied in the history of the word and the base root of the word that it's something that is freely given, a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are a gracious gift given supernaturally. Spiritual gifts are designed, the designed ability to give to every believer by which the Holy Spirit ministers to the body of Christ. It's a divine enablement as a result of our faith in Christ and We get these gifts into our heart when we receive Christ as Savior and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. Every Christian has their own unique spiritual gift mix, which God gives to each one using also your natural talents and your personality as well. So every one of us have a different gift mix. You have one that's probably the dominant one. Every time I take a spiritual gift test, One time it's teaching is the dominant one, the next one's administration, and then they switch back and forth. They must be very close for my spiritual gift mix. Each one of us is a spiritual snowflake, unique gift mix, unlike anybody else. It's as if God took a canvas and he has all the colors in front of him and he takes a paintbrush and he paints your gift mix on your heart, unique just for you. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11, he says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Notice verse 7, it's a common good. It's for the good of all in the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts cannot be earned. They can't be pursued or worked up, but they can be sharpened and improved. And I said, as each one of us has one dominant or strong gift, and I hope you know what your gift mix is. And if you don't, please see me. I got a great inventory that I could send home with you to questionnaire to take, and it really does a great job of defining or showing you probably what your gifts are. And then where the free spiritual gifts are given as God designs and desires, as he designs and desires. We're to be good managers, good stewards of these spiritual gifts that God has given to each and every one of us. A steward is a manager. He has resources, he has assets that are given to him or her. And she or he is responsible to make the most of them, to use them wisely, to improve on the assets and the resources that are given. I've had three opportunities to be in that situation of being a manager. In one situation, I was over half a million dollars a year, responsible for every penny and everything in the store and the employees and everything else. And uh, when I got my paycheck, it had Don K. Poole on the bottom because he was the owner and he was the one who gave me my paycheck. I didn't own any of that building or any of the assets. I was merely overseeing them in his care. And that's the picture here as we think of the spiritual gift mix that God has given us. They are to increase our faith as we use them. In Romans 12, 3, it says, For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to us through the spiritual gifts that he's given us. It's done by faith. Spiritual gifts are given in order to serve and share them in ministry with others to build them up in their faith. Spiritual gifts are not given to merely build ourselves up alone in the faith, but the end of verse 11 says God's varied or multifaceted grace. That's why they are given. God has many, many designs for the gifts given and what they're to be used for in the midst of various trials and tribulations that we may face. So here's the application. Do you know your spiritual gift mix? And can you see God's use of those gifts while serving others? I hope you do. And if you don't, see me. I've got some resources that could help you identify those things. And then to figure out from there, like we talked about in our church membership class, how to use those gifts match them up to ministries in the church where you would be passionately interested in serving and using those gifts. Our fifth and last description of a revived church showing love as it eagerly awaits the return of Christ is this. Love's aim is always to glorify the Father. Love's aim is always to glorify the Father. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, if you would. Whoever speaks, talking about the spiritual gifts in verse 10, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Paul lists the spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. See, Peter Wagner wrote a book that I often use when we teach on this called Discover Your Spiritual Gifts. He lists 27 different spiritual gifts. He includes in there celibacy. And I think you could decide whether you agree with me or not, but being a missionary could be considered a spiritual gift. So I believe there's 28 possible spiritual gifts. But Peter narrows it down to two categories here in these verses. First of all, the speaking gifts, the preaching, the teaching, the wisdom, the knowledgement, the discernment gifts, to name just a few. And notice what he says, they speak the oracles of God. These are not speaking based on human opinion, but the very words of God. Sayings literally it means that can be traced back to God. It literally means this person is the mouthpiece of God. So we have to take this gift, if you have one of these gifts, very seriously. Make sure you know how to interpret well the word of God and to exegete it and take the truth from the word to make it a part of your life and a part of your teaching. And then he says the serving gifts, the serving gifts. That could be administration, that could be leadership, that could be prayer, that could be mercy. Helps to name a few. But it means serving from the strength of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The point Peter is making here is that as we rely on God's word and his spirit to use our spiritual gifts, it will result with God getting all of the praise. The end of verse 11 is a doxology. It's an expression of praise and adoration to God for using us. And he gets all the praise and the glory because he created us in his image. By his grace, we are saved. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the spiritual gifts to serve his people so that in everything, he says there, in all matters of Christian responsibility, he will receive the praise, the honor, and the glory he so richly deserves. And Peter ends it by saying, amen. Let it be so, or so be it, is what he is saying there. The application here is, are we taking time to examine why we serve others? Are we understanding why God has gifted us? Are we serving others out of love? Not motivated about how people may think how great our teaching is or our lessons are, but are we pointing people to Christ through what gifts he has given us to do? Some things to conclude with today. We need to make sure that we're thinking with the mind of Christ, as he said earlier in verse 7, and disciplined in our spiritual practices as we seek holiness and dependence upon God in these last days. We're to make sure that love is a verb, it's an action, not just a sentimental feeling, and use the resources God has given to each of us to minister to others. We're to serve one another and those in need around us in our lives. As I've said many times before and will continue to repeat again and again, God gives us teaching, knowledge, and our experience with him to constantly give it all away to those around us who are open and receptive to God's love and God's care and God's will in their life. So here's the key thought as we close today. We are like God when we show love to others in response to the love that he has freely poured out upon us. We're to be like a conduit, a pipe. And as the 
love comes to us, it should flow out of us individually, uniquely with our natural talents, our personality, our spiritual gifts to other people. I close with this thought. There was a wealthy uh, traveler. He was very, very wealthy, and he went to a southeastern Asian country, and he went to a missionary hospital. And while he was there, he saw a young missionary nurse taking care of the sores and the issues of an elderly man who was found in a gutter and brought in. And as he watched intently as she uh, put antiseptic on him and bandaged him up and cared for his sores and touched his body, she sa he said, I would never do that for a million dollars. And the young missionary said, nurse said, neither would I. But I do it because of the love and the devotion and the commitment to Jesus Christ. Because her commitment was to be broken and spilled out and poured out for the love of Christ. You've heard this axiom many times, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You see, when we have a genuine love, it makes us desire to be like God who gave us his very best when he sent his son. So when we love, the natural outgrowth of that is that we will give to others. Let's bow for prayer. In the quietness of this moment, maybe God's challenging you about someone this week that you haven't been very loving to. Or maybe there's someone out there that has deeply offended you and you've sensed that the Holy Spirit's been prompting you to talk to this person by bringing that situation up again and again in your mind. Or maybe God's challenging you that you have spiritual gifts, but you're not fully exercising them. You're not sharing them with the body of Christ to build them up in their faith. And as you build up their faith, it builds your faith as well. In the quietness of this moment, we know God's word doesn't return void. And we just ask that you would just examine your heart and ask God, what is it that I can apply and do as a result of this message of being fervent in love from 1 Peter 4? Take a moment. Ask God to show you and make a commitment this week as to doing something about what God challenges you to do. Father, as we watch all around us what appear to be prophecies of the end times, wars increasing, earthquakes, all kinds of other things that possibly can point to the fact of your soon return, Lord. And we agree with the, the writer in Revelation, the Apostle John, even so come, Lord Jesus. Help us in these last days to be prepared, to be watching, to be praying, to be serving, that you might find us faithful when you return, that we're about the Father's business so that we can enjoy our time in heaven with you and our rewards as a result. Lord, if there's anybody here that needs to make a commitment for whatever reason, I pray you'll help them to not just pray that now, but Lord, just to put it into a practical way this week as they go out these doors and, and uh, that you, they would do what you've challenged them to do today. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.